We are in Revelation chapter 3 tonight. And so we are going to continue through looking at Jesus' message to the churches, his church. There's one church, it's his church. His church gathers in many places for the last 2,000 plus years. We know as we've started into this in chapter 1 and some of the things that were explained to us and uh, the images were explained there, or the, the references, the metaphors, you know, the messengers and pastors uh, are, are, you know, the, the ones he says, that, hey, listen, these, I'm speaking to these, I'm speaking to you all. These messengers, pastors are, are under shepherds to the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And so as I have a responsibility, it's not limited to me in the sense of I, I receive from the Lord, I seek his word, I, I want to know what he has to say to me as a person who's accountable to him for what I do with what he's given me. And I know as I'm presenting that truth and those things by example and by teaching, that you too are modeling that same principle, that same truth. And that's really, in essence, what we see as even children's ministry is being taught or youth ministry is being taught and small group studies are being taught. And what we're taking, what we're given, what's been given to us, and we're sharing it with those around us. And it's a beautiful model, um, but we always want to remember that his, his messengers, his shepherds, are always under him, the great shepherd. You know, he's the shepherd of the church. We are his sheep. Um, to each of the seven churches, which speaks of complete church, and you could even see it because of where we live in history, the complete church throughout history. And Jesus declares, as you've seen, if you've been with us, then you can reference yourself um, from the first, well, now we're into the third chapter. He says repeatedly, I know you. He either says, I know your works, or he's just conveying, I, I know what's going on. I know what this world's like. I know what you're going through. I know your actions. I know your inactions. And, and so we see as we read through this, it's, he's just speaking uh, something that we should embrace, something more than embrace. We should um, look forward to knowing. You know, do we look forward to knowing that he knows? Or do we go, oh, I hope he didn't notice that. See, honestly, there's the element where we got to recognize he knows. Galatians, I believe it's chapter 6, says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. You know, God, God knows. And that's meant to, to, for us to carry in our awareness, our consciousness, because it will affect the way we live in a good way. It, it shouldn't be disappointing or discouraging, but it can be because it's corrective, and nobody likes chastening, as Hebrews says. Nobody likes the discipline in the moment, but they like the benefit of being corrected by somebody who knows, who somebody is aware and being directed. And so to start, I want to just reference Psalm 23. I'm gonna, I'm not, we're not going to go there, so to speak. I want to read the first portion of that. We're going to return to this uh, later in our, our time tonight. But in Psalm 23, David declared, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. So what we just read is he knows you. He knows me. He knows what he's doing. So let's pray, God. We are approaching a specific passage of your word tonight here in Revelation 3. And with just that pleasant reminder that review of Psalm 23 that you are the shepherd. You are the shepherd of our souls. 
You are the one who knows what's best for us. You know everything about us. Even when we were resistant to you, even rebellious and quite honestly indignant towards you, you loved us. Not in word or deed, in a sense of poetry or some statement. You loved us by your actions. You came into this world. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. While we were opposed to you, you were saving us, offering to us that gift of salvation. Your only requirement is that we exercise our free will, influenced by your grace, that we would agree that we need your forgiveness from our own sins individually and personally, that we need your forgiveness. And so, God, thank you that you offered that free, free gift. It cost us nothing, cost you everything, that we could be forgiven, that we could be brought into your fold, into what you tell us to be the true, the family of God. And so, as your children tonight, we ask, Lord, that you would walk us through your word, to teach us everything we need to know, help us to be encouraged, excited even, ignited to know more about you, not because of the words that would come from my mouth per se, but what you would plant and place within our hearts individually from your word tonight. And so, Lord, walk us through, teach us all that you have for us. It's in your beautiful name, Jesus, the name above all names. The name in which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you in your name we ask these things. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Revelation 3, we have looked at details uh, to the messages to the various churches. Let me give you a quick review. We looked at Ephesus. That was the first one lift, listed, the church there in Ephesus, Jesus' message to that church, to the church in Smyrna. Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis. Tonight we'll look at Philadelphia. Ephesus, I could say, you could see the message would be return to love. Smyrna, he was advised, we were encouraged, we were made known and, and to endure persecution. Pergamos, halt to hypocrisy. Stop trying to bring the world into the church and take the gospel to the world. As I'm sharing these things, we know, as I've said each week, you know, this, this, there were geographic churches that, in a locale identified by their name in, in, there in Asia Minor that were, were meeting at this time. And there's also historical epochs or seasons where we see some of these churches really kind of fit in at different points in human history over the last 2,000 years that, that really exemplify or have the characteristics of one particular letter or the other. We know also this letter is meant to be put to application and practice in the church, the contemporary church now, that we're to, to live it out. And I believe another way to receive from this and be aware of it is to realize you personally, you know, I personally want to be open to these seven different characteristics that are within the body of Christ. I want to receive correction. I want to receive comfort. I want to hear from the Lord in my personal life that I could be a, a, a person, a, a child of God that can be taught by the Father. And so as we think through that, we consider then also Thyatira. Thyatira, I would say, the summary would be turned from corruption, which had crept in. Sardis, remember he said, you're dead. But not, he says, you know, now go back to those things that are still alive. 
for the most part, the works they were doing were not invigorated. They were not motivated or propelled by life in Christ. They were, were propelled by Christian action, or what we call Christian action. It's more just duplication to some degree of other things. But he said, you know, you're, you're dead. go back to those things which are still alive. Before they die, you could see. So let's come back to life. And then tonight, we're going to look at Philadelphia. Philadelphia, I would say, means it would be remain faithful. We're going to see that from this particular church, the, the characteristics and the expressions. And I'd like to give you some background, but we're going to read 7 through 13, which is the specific text addressing the, what's called the church at Philadelphia. So let's read from verse 7 to verse 13 of Revelation chapter 3 tonight. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Verse 9, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. And know and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, let's move back up and consider the historical or the geographical church there of Philadelphia. What's Philadelphia mean? Anybody know? Brotherly love, because we have a city in our country that's the city of brotherly love called Philadelphia. A little background on that, uh, it's actually two Greek words. Uh, Philadelphos is the nickname of the king of per- uh, Pergam. I mean, Pergamos, you know, we remember, remember studying that? Well, his name, Italus II, and Italus and his brother, I think it's Eumenes, Eumenes? They had a really unique relationship. In 172, Eumenes was attacked, and the report came back to Italus that his brother was killed. So Italus married Eumenes' wife, or yes, Stratonice, and he became king of Pergamos. But then his brother showed up, and so now there's this dilemma but Italus divorced his brother's wife and ceded power over to Eumenes without a fight. Then in 159 BC, Eumenes died, and Italus remarried Stratonice. So because his nephew from Eumenes, Eumenes' son, was too young to rule, Italus ruled as a regent king, and then later went on to found the city of Philadelphia. Or it was, but I found it interesting, that history, because it does give us a little glimpse of a different type of brotherly love in that culture. 
You know, here's something, there, there was something very unique about their connection, their relationship. Um, Philadelphia, along the Apian Way, was a prosperous city. One of the key gateways through modern Turkey, uh, connecting to the east and on over to the Orient. The original uh, purpose from the Romans, if you would, well, Greek even, was to spread the message of Hellenism, which was Greek culture, even the language. This was the, the center point that this was being sent out from. And so they're to spread culture, they're to spread this new word. It was kind of a new, going to be, like I say, clear in towards the Orient, and it already had come out of more what would be west of there, uh, Rome and stuff. So they had, there was a spread that message of this new culture. But the purpose Jesus has for the Philadelphia church is to spread the message of salvation, the good news of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is the city who he is seen as, you know, they're faithful. There's, there really isn't a, a rebuke, if you would, to, the, to this city. They're, they're commended and encouraged and, and cautioned as they are just by the sense of told to stay the course. Let's see in verse 7, as we've just looked at the elements in the history of Philadelphia, it says, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. You probably have caught as we went along in each church, as Jesus addresses the, the specific church and the, these, these things that he wants to condense into the, that particular package or that, those characteristics and things that are present in that church, he introduces himself differently with a different emphasis or maybe a different uh, you know, title even, so to speak. So I found it interesting that he is holy, he who is true. It ties together what we've already looked at. It's what he knows about you, what he says, has to say to you, is true. So what he's saying to the church and even the specifics, and you know, I, I know this is a challenge sometimes in sorting out the voice of God in your life. And I don't hear the voice of God audibly. I'm really kind of wanting to. I'm kind of curious. But I've just realized that that's just not the base in Scripture. But he does speak to the very quietness of our heart, to our innermost being. There's a story, and we refer to it as the Lord spoke to me because we're trying to find some way to somehow communicate what the Lord has emphasized from his word to be applied by us through his power for his glory. So we try to find ways to say it, because I've yet to hear somebody who actually audibly heard. I've had some times that I would say that's as close as it's been, but it still isn't the same. You see what I mean? And so here he's saying, I, I, I know what's true. He's, making, he's standing right up front. You know, he, he is holy. Holy speaks of set apart, set apart for a purpose. He, he's sanctified, set apart. He's true. The Lord speaks to you, and it's so important that we pause and listen. And when we have an assessment, a summary, a conclusion in our mind, we need, to, we need to chew on that. We need to meditate upon that. We need to ponder that. We need to wonder about that in a, in a very relational way, not from a sense of doubt or confirmation or that. It's like, Lord, I sense that you're speaking to me about this, this type of engagement, this choice of language, this mindset, this attitude, this way of thinking, these various things that are in us individually. When the living God will bring a sense of direction to you, to your life. It's just him. I mean, he's not even sending an angel to do that. He's just doing it because he resides within us. Wow. 
you know, I feel guilty because there's times I have that awareness of his direction and that clarity of his word and an emphasis from the Holy Spirit. But two days later, I can't remember it because I didn't really value that I heard from the living God. I didn't really grasp and take hold of the truth that God is directing my steps. He's, he's leading us into various things so that we can lean on him and learn from him. And some things we know we would classify them as wonderful and glorious and joyful, and others we wouldn't. <laughs> it's just hard and difficult. But yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're right there with me. And man, I want to encourage you, be receptive to what God is showing you. Don't go all Pentecostal, so to speak, and all emotion and get all jumpy and happy because if that's your nature, fine, Becky. If, if, you know, if it's not, no big deal. But the point is, don't let that be a distraction from the depth that roots can, can give you. Because sometimes our animation, our excitement, and I've been there, man, that's so awesome. I felt so much relief. God, you're so good. But I need to also let that settle let the, the roots, the, uh, the seeds of these particular tr- truths grow deep into our heart that we have a sure foundation. And then we're like trees planted by the, the rivers, the edges of, of the river. Those trees have solid roots because they're, they're sourced. So that's my encouragement to you. You know, just as the Lord speaks to you, chew upon it. Let it settle. Let it set, set in. He's right. He's true. He has the key of David. Interesting way to describe himself, isn't it? Jesus is the one who has the key of David, or what's the key of David? David was told that his descendant would sit on the throne forever. In the men's group, even last night, we were studying, uh, you know, going through some, a couple weeks study of lessons in the life of David. And it's so fascinating to see the details of David's life, but know that God put him in a place in history, in a specific ancestral line, for purposes beyond our imagination, and, and it'd be referenced that, you know, Jesus is of the line of David. What a fascinating thing. And so he's saying to you and I, have, this is the key. This, that's the key of eternal life. Jesus is on the throne forever. Because David was told, you, your, your descendant will occupy the throne forever. And of course, then David, like, scratching his head and trying to figure out the majesty and the magnitude of that. A key, you know, or the door, it's a metaphor, you know, and it continues in there here in the verse 7. Speaking of he who opens, no one shuts, and shuts, no one opens. This church will be commended for their faithfulness, for their perseverance, for their loyalty to Jesus. And Jesus has opened doors for the gospel to go forth, and they've been faithful to go through those doors. And I thought about that, how the early church, they had to learn these things. They had to learn how do you, how do you go forward in an in a act of obedience, in an expression of taking the gospel into the world. How do, you, how do you do that? Is it just when you're financially in a spot, you have the financial freedom to go without having to go to work the next morning? Um, is it, I mean, there's just real practical things you have to weigh out. And like, how do, we, how do we do that? Let's turn over to Acts chapter 6. You know, obviously, we're going to be coming right back to Revelation 3. But in Acts, um, actually chapter 16... We find, uh, beginning in verse 6, it says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia, this is all north of where we're reading about here in Revelation, and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. What? 
I thought we were supposed to just go everywhere. Wherever there's an opportunity, speak up. Yeah. But you're also, we are also to be led by the Spirit. And God prepares. He opens doors, and then he closes doors. And so here, you know, they, they wanted to go, and they wanted to preach the word, but they were forbidden in Asia. So they didn't just stop and like, well, I guess we're done now. Verse 7, after they had, after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So here is this evangelical crew with the Apostle Paul in the, in the crew, you go out and we read the book of Acts and we see how the Lord ministered and moved and touched and grew in phenomenal ways. The first message and thousands of people come to Christ. And now we're reading how he's like, there were times that they, they were trying to figure out which way to go and, and they got a door closed. And so they thought, well, okay, well, we might go this way. So you know, they weren't permitted. So in verse eight, passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Do you catch the wording there? So we got to talking, and Paul was telling us, he had this vision, this sense of like, there's this guy over here in Macedonia saying, Come over and help us. So as we're talking about it, it's like the, the group is talking about, okay, so, you know, I, I think the Lord wants us to go there. And the reason I brought, bring attention to that, they concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. They tried here, and they tried there, and it was just no go. And, and it wasn't like, okay, now here's this audible voice out of a burning bush making clear to them, this is where you go, right here. Here's your address, here's, your, here's the room and board, here's your flight number, here's this is what you do. Instead, they're like, you know, no, no, maybe this way. I want, see, doesn't that kind of shock you a little bit? That the Lord wasn't definitive to them? Because you want definitive. If you're going to do this or do that, you want definitive. You want absolute. I do. But the, the Bible doesn't, it shows me historically, that's not always how it works. It could work that way. I know when I moved out here with Kim and I and our family, and you know, I drove out into the city and just, I just drove the city. And at one point I just parked because it didn't take long to drive it, drive it, of course. But I just parked and just walking and praying. And trying to sort out, Lord, what would you have us to do? And I didn't, I didn't really get a like, that's it. There were certain verses that I embraced, and I believe he illuminated, as I've already started, how, telling you how we, he leads us. But I wasn't really sure. And I noticed that there was a lot of churches and a lot of bars. So I'm like, well, that's not uncommon in small towns, really. But there was definitely a different proportion here. So I, that, that affected my ability to hear the Lord because if there's already these churches, why one more? Why not support one of those that are there and build them up? Why come in with another one? And so as I were literally logically kind of weighing these things through, I'm like, Lord, you know. And he literally just impressed on my heart, you just be you because I'm not done with you. You just be you and, and let me work in you. And, and it wasn't to, to be like, uh, you know, some church, big church numerically or anything. There wasn't anything in my mind attached to that. It so resonated. You just be you because I'm not done with you. Okay. Didn't matter where I would go. 
I didn't, really didn't. I drove to Cuna, I drove to McCall, I picked a few places I would have preferred geographically and based on fishing and hunting and timber and stuff like that. And, and I knew that none of those were, quote, closed door. But what it come down to is he just was, listen, you, just, you be you. I'm not done with you. And it was awesome because that's, I, just, I concluded at that point, okay, well, then this must be it. So we didn't, you know, I didn't quit my job. We didn't sell the house in the, on, on a spur of a moment. I was like, all right, well, let's go. And Kim and I, we come out together. And we, we knew that the Lord would confirm to both of us what he was doing through us, and it would affect our entire family. And so we waited till we were really in sync. And, and I think you see that. You see how it's said here. I, I springboarded over to this topic and then hinged you know, over to here out of Revelation 3 because of what we see. He opens and, clo- and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And we want to be open to what he's directing us to. Not so much as I, the examples I've just used with like myself moving out here or even as we've seen the travels of Paul and those in the early church at that time specifically. But in any way, if he opens a door with a neighbor, don't go, you know, I've talked to that guy five times. And the fifth time he was as big a jerk as the first time. So I don't have a jerk ministry. I'm going to have to find something else, you know. And so you, but, but if the Lord opened a door that was previously shut, then what do you do? You look for the open door and you recognize the closed one. Like There's just not that conversation right now. I'll be open to it. And I'll be quick on this one. I've shared with you before. But we had a, had a neighbor that we lived next door to for 17 years. 17 years. Never had any, any lengthy conversation. A collective com, uh, time total of our conversation for 17 years would probably be five minutes total. And yet, after those 17 years, some different things to come about, you know, and I, I mentioned to you a, a good friend of mine, Nick, and, and that, we, he's the neighbor. We never really knew each other. And it was not an open door for whatever reason. You can analyze it all you want, but it, I just know there came a point where we were able to engage and connect and become, still to this day, good friends. And even when Nick's wife passed away, Kim was able to share the hope of the gospel with her. And that was, you know, it's a, it's a really beautiful thing because they were just, they're, they're wonderful neighbors. They were, you know, once we got to know each other in this new season, then things changed in amazing ways. It's still to a friend to this day. So I just say that when he opens doors, be open. It may be with a neighbor, it may be with a coworker, whoever it may be. You have the opportunity to live out the love you've been given. So as we move along here, moving back to chapter 3, verse 8, as he says, I know your works. Remember, I've drawn emphasis to that. I, I know your works. I would say to you, he knows your labor of love, the sweat of kindness. I think you know what I mean by that. Your exhaustion and your empathy, your energy and your enthusiasm. I know. And I've given you open and closed doors, and you've been faithful. He goes on to say, he... Um, in verse 8, sorry there. Uh, See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For, if you have, for you have a little strength. You've kept my word and have not denied my name. I want to draw your attention to what he commends them for. And I believe it's something for all of us to be aware of as we desire and as we strive to live by faith. As we, we desire to be obedient in this open door, closed door, dynamic reality and walking in faith from the actual verse, from this text, 
We can see he says, for you have, the four is a connector. It's a, uh, you know, this is, I know your works. I see these things. For you have a little strength. You have a little strength. Now, that sounds initially in our minds like, well, wouldn't it be good if I had a lot of strength? Wouldn't be more strength be more of a comp- compliment? But no, no, see, the context I think we can see because of the relationship with Christ. Know where your strength lies. See, your strength is little in this world based on the logic of this world. You as a Christian are not seen as a strong person in the community that you live in, generally speaking. Not from a vocational sense. You might be recognized for different things, but it's just not a logic that the world uses. Matter of fact, they don't know why you waste your Sundays. You only get two days off a week and you waste one of them in church. So that it doesn't make sense to them. It seems so, so weak. The strength of the gospel is in and from Jesus. Without him, we have nothing. Paul arrived at this point. He, he got to this point. If you want to turn to, to it with me, you, we can go over to 2 Corinthians in chapter 9, I mean chapter 12. Paul, it's an interesting part of Scripture, writing his second letter to the Corinthians and clarifying some things and readdressing some new issues that had come up there. He begins to tell about the, his personal experiences that he didn't tell very many people about. He's very private about it. But he gets into it because he realizes what he needs to make known to them as regards to uh, true authority and true maturity in Christ. And he says in, in verse 7 of his experience in his prayer life and his walk with Jesus, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. Remember what revelation means from our study over here, unveiling. And the things that God had unveiled to him and made known to him, lest he would be like, lifted up or puffy about it he was given a thorn in the flesh a messenger of satan to buffet me lest i be exalted above measure concerning this thing i pleaded with the lord three times that it might be might depart from me verse 9 and he said to me my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so you see, he, kind of, he had this realization, Lord, could you just take this away? I could do so much more for you. I could, my life would be, no, would be so much you know, more effective if you take this thorn in the flesh. We don't even know what it was. There's a lot of speculation and good discussion. Bottom line is there was something in his life, and I believe that God hid the actual thing so that we would be open to our thing. Because if our thing wasn't that thing, then we wouldn't consider it our thing. That makes sense? So anyway, here he, he just realizes, you know, okay, you, you have told me that I can, I can handle this, and I'm going to leave it with you. Because if I don't leave a little thorn in your balloon, you get all puffed up in your ego. So I'm going to leave this thing leaking, so to speak, to let your ego be deflated a little bit, so to speak. And so he, he, he realized that that was who he is. If more people would admit that they need this, then you would see the strength of God more. 
But too often, our our egos and our opinions are so inflated, we have no spiritual vision because we have this big opinion that blocks or inhibits and prevents us from being able to see what God would do if we could recognize there's a little strength. I I have little strength. I can do a few things. I could work systems. I could do, you know, restore emotions. It's just nothing. But the strength in Christ, when I realize my, my strength, your strength, our strength, is in our weakness. When we say, I don't really want to be, you know, promoting and producing a man-made church. I want to just grow closer to you. When we recognize, man, I need you. I can't even, I'm having a hard time being honest with myself. Lord, help me. I'm weak here. Then we see what? His strength within us. And so it's not till those weaknesses, really. It's not till we run out of options, if you would. I don't call for help if I can do it. Agreed? Can you agree with that? I don't call for help if I can do it. And if I can't do it, I still won't call for help (laughs) until I realize I can't do it. I will press on, I will push harder, I will be just exercise stupid and get better at it, but eventually what do I do? God, I don't know how to deal with this. And he's like, okay, let me show you strength. We have little strength, and that's what we see. There's three points I've mentioned. There's one, you have little strength. Going back to the text there in Revelation, we see you have little strength. Jump over there. We also see, he says, that you have kept my word. If you have little strength, you have kept my word. Kept there means uh, guarded, you've attended to, you valued it greatly. And by real world application, I encourage you to do this. Preserve, practice, and present. Preserve the word, hold tight to it. That's, yes, in a public setting, but more importantly, in a private setting. Preserve, make that word, the word of God important to you. How do you do that? Well, it usually means you got to get up before you start driving. You know, you got to give up a little earlier, perhaps, if that's your schedule or that's your practice. Or you have to make a sacrifice to be consistent at noon. Or you have to, you know, put off a few things that you might be distracted by in the evening. Whatever, you're preserving. You're, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, I, I want to keep it. it. It's important. It's highly valued. It's valued greatly, you could say. When you value something greatly, you deal with it differently, right? Uh, if you've been given great responsibility, you deal with that responsibility differently. A quick example is, uh, you know, we had uh, went to India one time, and I, had, I was entrusted to carry a whole bunch of money because back in that day, the transfer back and forth was a little complicated and sometimes costly. So you could carry like over, right up to about 10 grand or whatever on your person. But... I didn't like that. I didn't like having that. And not because of, of, of risk. It's more my mind. It's like, man, I, this is a great responsibility. So what I did, you guys probably remember, the, I think they still use them. You could buy these little passport pocket, little purses, basically. And you could just wear them around your neck. And then you'd tuck them inside your shirt, and you'd have your passport in or your cash and stuff. So I've got that tucked in my shirt. I was a lot skinnier then. And so it's like, you know, tucked in there. And, and guess what I'm doing all the time? Constantly, I probably look like I had some type of you know minor epilepsy or something, you know, because I'm constantly. It's because it. Why? I knew the. I knew what it represented. 
labor, sweat, love. I knew the need. I valued it greatly. I wanted to, I wanted to transfer that to where it was supposed to go. And I think it's a, a good picture. Keep in the word. You preserve it. You practice it. You literally, you know, you're, you're not only just, you can memorize the word and not be changed. History proves that. It's a sad testimony on the church that there's a memorization without transformation, and it's a terrible witness. For you and I, we want to practice. I want to put this into play. I want to put this into my, it's got to be in my life, and I want to present it by my actions. Be a good witness for Christ, and when you have the opportunity, use words. Too many times Christians will use words and not back it up by their lifestyle. And we want it to be like literally, and this church in Philadelphia, I believe that that was happening, all three of those things. They, pres- they were preserving the word. They were practicing what they knew. They kept the word. And it says also in the third point within this text, this verse, and have not denied my name. You have not denied my name. I thought about what that could mean. And it came to me, you've kept it all about Jesus. See, many even today, whether it's digital you know, the online thing we call some type of relationship or what engagement, communication, which you know, there's some benefit to it, or it's face-to-face. Many want to talk about God. They will, they'll speak up. They'll talk about eternity. They'll share ideology. They'll, they'll discuss theory and theology. But not so many are eager to speak of Jesus. That's really the problem for many people. They'll talk about all kinds of stuff because it's not definitive then. It's imaginative. There's no absolute. There's no historical facts. There's an observable probability that could be considered a you know, high percentage reality, eternity. But when we start talking about Jesus, he said, you know, I am. Not I was and I could be and I might be. I am. He said that. Speaking of, he always has been. He was, and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He, he said that, you know, I will rise from the dead. History proves he did. So when you get into these factual discussions, you, you, you lose conversation. Because many people, and I believe they have not denied my name, speaks of that one thing. And I don't think you should be boring and repetitious and somehow think in a spiritual mantra and magic, you say his name enough, then obviously things are going to happen. That's just foolish. You know, not to be repetitive. Repetitive doesn't impress God. Unless that repetitiveness is born in repentance and it's born in relationship. And so... We want to be aware that, you know, we want to, we want to keep it about Jesus. I was, uh, somebody had said something years ago, and it was one of the best compliments they've ever given me while they were criticizing me. And, and what it was, was we were going through the Gospel of John. And this person who had spent a lot of time in church, and spent a lot of time in an intellectual, heady study of the Word, which is good, if it's centered, born into the heart. But anyway, they said, you know, Dan, they didn't say it to me, they said it to somebody to get to me. Dan needs to understand there's more books than the Gospel of John, and there's more in the Bible than talking about Jesus. And, and I, got, I, get, I get where they're coming from, you know, because they, they, we'd spent a lot of time in, in the Gospel of John, so it was a, a thought that was like, you know, we're never going to get into the other parts of the Bible, so don't paint them as like some, you know, total wacko. But they're kind of wacko, because they, they had heard enough about Jesus. And I thought, wow, am I making it boring? If there's some way I'm not, as a messenger, delivering it in a fashion that it's receptive, because you can do that. 
You, you can actually be quite offensive, and then you can say, oh, they're carnal. They didn't receive the message. Well, you were a poor communicator. So I, I questioned that. I'm like, you know, Lord, I'm not going to get into all this stuff because I was then suggested, hey, could we have a class on this element and this aspect of theology? Could we start studying this different stuff? And I'm like, when we get done with John, <laughs> we'll, then we'll talk about it. When I get this done... Then I will entertain some of those other things that are good in the right place. But I'm not called to that. I'm called to, as a pastor, shepherd, teacher to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, the, the totality, as it says, as it was said uh, to the, on the island of Miletus to the Ephesian elders, Paul said, I have not neglected to give to you the whole counsel of God. So the whole thing, I want to teach you the whole word and constantly and continually. So I encourage you, you know, give a little strength, but it's good. Keep his word, value this, and do not deny his name. And when someone's defensive, offensive, and getting in your face, just pray. You don't have to say anything. They've already said enough. But you have this element. You know, I've had people say, you know, they basically, I don't want anything to do with you, this and that. And it's, you know, it's friction, it's life. But quietly in my head, you can never keep me from praying for you. You can never keep me from hoping that I will be out of the way and Jesus will be so important to you. You'll have an encounter with the living God that your life will be changed and you'll not, you don't even have to remember me. Maybe sometimes you shouldn't because it might spark the wrong attitudes or whatever. So moving on, we see in verse 9, Indeed, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. And know that I have loved you. So the early church was primarily Jews. We know that. The people who put him to the cross, the Bible says that he came to his own, the Jews, and they did not receive him. They crucified him. So you ought to realize that there was a harsh opposition. You know, they're the ones that this crucifixion came through, not through the Romans. This was Jews. And, the, and the, the opposition in the early church was mostly Jewish. And so, but those, there were many even there that said they were Jews, but they were not. You know, they may have had the family line, but they didn't have the circumcision of heart. They didn't have that relationship with Christ. And so I want to say it this way. Those who mock and ridicule and curse you because of your verse 8 qualities, we just looked at those, because of those qualities, they will bow down to your Lord In Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, it reads this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So everyone will bow, not unto salvation. You know, we'll see later in the book of Revelation, the wrath to come. The people won't bow to receive the gift of life. They'll bow in, in shame and in humiliation that they've rejected the gift of life. So we can see that move into verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So this verse 10, many see this speaking of the rapture of the church before the beginning of the great tribulation which is spoken of in this chapter in Revelation uh, chapter 6 and on. So does that make sense? This, I, I really do believe that. I, I think it's uh, something that it's, 
causes you to go, okay, well, that, that does make sense. The rapture of the church before the beginning of the great tribulation, and I could show you in First uh, uh, Thessalonians more detail about that. We'll come back to that on a different night. We're going to go through the end times scenario and timeline. I'm going to give you an up, a prophecy update here soon on some other passages. But we also see the exhortation throughout the New Testament to, burst, to persevere, to endure, to overcome. Make a note, the Christian journey is not easy, but it's worth it. It's not easy. Nowhere in Scripture will you see following Christ is a free-flowing, non-resistance, great, easy thing to do. It is difficult. Jesus said to his disciples, and I'm sure there was a jaw-dropper, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. See, so he's saying, listen, straight up. There's trials. They're going to have difficulty that you never thought coming. You're going to have opposition from people you thought were your friends. You're going to have Jesus. You know, he said, I have not come to just knit everybody together in a happy love. He'd use the different terms, but I've come to pit father against son, mother against daughter, brother against brother. Because he literally is saying, I, I am God, which means he's elevated above all of the relationships. And if your family member, if your friend or those close friends say, you know what, I don't mind you being around, but I don't want anything to do with that Jesus junk, what are you going to do? You know what you're going to do. You're going to follow the Lord. You're going to say, you know what, I, I, I can't play. I, I had a situation, I won't get into the details, I've shared it, but where I had to make that decision. And it was actually pretty easy to do in the moment because I realized this, you don't want me now because I'm not how I used to be. And because I'm not how I used to be, I have to now be how you are, to be welcomed back, which I didn't even take it from a spiritual perspective. I just looked at that truth and said, I don't want anything to do with it. Because if I have to be what you want me to be, I don't get to be who I am. I only get to be what you want me to be. And that form of peer pressure, vocationally, recreationally, academically, athletically, all these church-wide, all these things, no. Because you're not you anymore. And so, and even more so, when you realize, if I have to give up my closeness with Christ to have a close relationship with you, I, I don't think you want me to answer that. I, I can't, I can't, I can't turn around. I mean, and, and I had the conversation, I can't turn from the one who I know has forgiven me and given me life. I can't turn from him. I, I'll try not to be offensive to you, because I was actually a jerk in, in a lot of ways, the way I communicated. But I, I'm not giving it up. I will not. I will not be what you want me to be now that I know who he is. I can't. Verse 11. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. The doctrine of imminent return is essential to help us stay focused. It's essential to help us mature, to grow, to stay on course, to stay focused. The doctrine of eminent return, really as that would describe, Jesus will return at any moment, eminently. Now, of course, even in that day, we read in First Peter how people kind of mock that. Yeah, 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 people have been saying that for 2,000 years. You know, that's what they say now. Yeah, I've heard that Jesus coming back thing for years. You know, I've heard it here or there, and I think, okay. So you can agree we're getting closer, 
They're usually wanting to use it to disprove it. I'm like, well, you're just saying we're closer now than we were. I agree with you on that. No, I'm not sure it's going to happen. It's going to happen. The early church lived with the, the awareness that Jesus could return at any moment for his church and return, and then he would return and go, go to heaven and later come back with his church. And so they, they accepted, they knew it. They were confident in it. Paul was confident in it. Does, does that mean they were wrong that, that they went to the Lord individually before he returned corporately for the church? No, it doesn't mean they're wrong. It means it's still true. It's still true. If I pass, if you pass before the, tri- before the rapture, it's still true. He can return at any moment. There's not an unfulfilled prophecy. There's nothing left to do before he could return for his church. And when we realize that, and you look throughout Scripture, you know the par- Matthew 25, the parable of the, of the talents. You remember that? The summary is this. Each servant was given assignments, and they were to deal honorably with what the master had given them, what he had entrusted to them. And we see it like in incremental amounts. So one had more, one had less. But the emphasis is not the quantity, but what you do with what he's given you. And so the master says those amazing dear words that every disciple of Christ longs to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Those are the words we long to hear. And they're they're rooted in this sense of eminency and responsibility as servants of the Lord, as stewards of what he's entrusted to us. So we're told there in the end of verse 11, hold fast, or actually it's metal, hold fast. It speaks of keeping a firm grip on what's important to you. Um, it's just like what I mentioned about traveling to something of high value. You keep a firm grip. You check often. You think of what to do. You plan in advance what you'll do. You, you're intentional. When I was you used that example, I'm just in my mind. I, I literally thought where I would be, what I would do, you know, how I would place this particular package and this value when I slap. And you see, and, and he's saying in this text, hold fast. You know, he's coming quickly. Hold fast. Be ready. Don't let anybody take from you what you have. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. We've looked earlier in uh, how God has a new name for you, a name that he knows and you'll know. And it's pretty powerful. It shows the, the closeness, the intimacy that we have. Let me tell you a little bit about maybe the context of this particular emphasis, because we've seen it from each one of these different churches about the, the um, geographic church. Philadelphia was known as Little Athens for its architecture and buildings. In 17 AD, there was a massive earthquake. It actually is believed to be the greatest, you know, as far as magnitude, greatest earthquake Europe had ever experienced. And some would argue, maybe ever, that the world has experienced. And Philadelphia was rocked. And so much of the cities we've read about were rocked at 17 AD. Um, Philadelphia continued to have frequent aftershocks for many, many years. And the aftershocks continue, continued to do damage to the pillars and the buildings throughout the city. And basically, it was a little shaky. 
And here, what a picture Jesus gives them. A pillar in his temple is sure and solid and glorious. The pillars in this world will all crumble. You know, pillars, you know, in this world, when we see such uh, structure and such an amazing uh, uh, formations and then how they're built, it's impressive. But then when they crumble apart, you're like, gosh, that thing was quite something at one time. We have pillars all across Europe that crumbled. Another thing happened in the midst of all that. The Roman government, later in giving tax relief to rebuild after the earthquake, they also wanted Philadelphia, because they give money, give them tax relief so they could rebuild the city and, and some other things. But anyway, they wanted Philadelphia to take the name of Neo Caesarea. You know, Caesarea, speaking of Roman rule and lordship, Neo is new. The new Caesarea and it spoke of Roman rule and lordship. Jesus speaks of a new Jerusalem where he is Lord and he rules. Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. So it's a lot of de- It's funny when you dig into this stuff, you go, man, there's just a lot historically. There's a lot of things that he's saying that, that helps the early church and it helps us to look and go, oh, yeah, you know what? We're looking for a new Jerusalem. Not because we think it would be better, because Jesus said it would be better. It's going to be totally different. We're going to experience a city, a time, Jerusalem, the city of peace where he dwells, where there's no more sorrow and no more tears and no more crying. And man, a phenomenal place it'll be. And there'll be one thing that's really phenomenal, two things that are really phenomenal. The first thing we'd relate to at this level, no sin, no tempter, no deceiver. And the most phenomenal It's God's presence. Jesus' presence will provide the perfect ambiance, the perfect lighting. There will be no need. The Bible says there will be no need of sun or moon because his presence will provide the perfect lighting environment, place to live. Chapter 13, or verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Choose to listen. It's not automatic. That's why he says it. Y'all got those things attached to the side of your head called ears. But that doesn't mean you're turning them on. That doesn't mean I'm using mine. I may just like, oh, yeah, I heard something about that. Oh, hey, did you hear about the new dirt bike that came out? Now, suddenly I'm more interested in other things than the main thing. And those things are fine. They really are. They're of this world. It's not, that's not a problem. Unless they're at the expense of the things to come and the things that are even now. Choose to listen and choose to obey. And that goes back full circle to where we started tonight in that, you know, knowing what the Lord is emphasizing to us individually and collectively, knowing how we're to impact our community, know how we're, to li- how we're to live in such a way that people long for the peace and the joy and the love and the kindness and the compassion and the empathy that we have. How do you have that? Where do you get that? Can I have some of that? Oh, boy, I'm a distributor of that stuff. Let me check with the boss. I think he's got some samples for you. Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, I mean, think about it. People should see it. I had plans of going back to Psalm 23, which is what you're going to do on your own. <laughs> We're going to shut her down right now. and you, you, It's a beautiful psalm. You'll see how it fits. and um, you, Most of you have read it. Just have a sweet journey through it this evening or whatever. Let's pray. God, what an amazing thing that you have allowed us to get a glimpse of your glory. Your word reveals your majesty, your detail more and more about yourself and and it reveals your love and commitment to us forgive us lord where we've entertained things that are contrary to your will 
where we've said and done things that just don't honor you. We can justify it before people somehow, but it just doesn't honor you. Lord, teach us to honor you. I mean, we have the knowledge of your presence in such a way that we respond to your love. May that response be honorable to you, empowered by you, that we somehow could emanate and reflect and show your love to the world around us, and may they long to know what we know. Give us the wisdom and the kindness to share in a way that they would receive the hope, the joy, the gift of life from you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right. Sunday we will cover the lukewarm church, and then we are going to be moving into chapter 4, 5, 6, and right on through the book.